Tonight, straight from the source, we have more exclusive reporting on the January 6th investigation. The special counsel casting a wider net for witnesses in even more states. Plus, a new battle in the partisan war that is engulfing the Pentagon. Lawmakers are putting the U.S. military at the center of a political fight. Abortion, transgender health care, and diversity are all now part of a major defense bill. The former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Mike Mullen, is here to respond. And for 13 years, a string of murders went unsolved until now. The burner phones and the pizza crust that helped police catch the suspect in the Long Island serial killings. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. Tonight, the special counsel is expanding the January 6th investigation. Jack Smith going into all seven battleground states that Trump lost and where he fought the results to gather more evidence. We have learned exclusively tonight that two more top election officials have met with the special counsel's team. Pennsylvania Secretary of State Al Schmidt, a Republican, was interviewed back in March, a source tells CNN. He was asked about the impact of voter fraud misinformation as he was serving as Philadelphia's city commissioner at the time. And according to a second source, New Mexico's top election official, Democrat Maggie Toulouse Oliver, was also questioned in recent months. That's on top of the other officials that we already know about. Arizona's former Republican House Speaker Rusty Bowers broke the news right here that he had been subpoenaed by Jack Smith. And we were also the first to hear from Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson after learning that she, too, had been subpoenaed. Was there a certain area that they seemed the most focused on? I think, again, you can look back to the content of a lot of what the Congressional January 6th committee uh, discussed, uh, particularly when it comes to election workers, the impact of the misinformation uh, on our lives and the threats that emerged from that uh, from various sources. And then there is also Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, and his former close aide, Hope Hicks, also adding to the head-spinning week of news and the January 6th investigation alone now among dozens who have testified before the January 6th grand jury or been interviewed by federal prosecutors. These are just the ones our sources have told us about. There could, of course, be many more. We do know among them is the former Vice President Mike Pence, who said this about his former boss today. I believe uh, whatever his intentions in that moment, it endangered me and my family and everyone that was at the Capitol that day. I believe history will hold him accountable for that. CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig is here, along with former Republican congressman and a member of the January 6th Congressional Committee, Adam Kinzinger. Thank you both. Ellie, as we just have learned so much in recent weeks about truly how broad the January 6th investigation is, we now know it's gone into all seven of these battleground states. I mean, what does it signify to you as we learn more about this investigation, where it could be going as it comes to an end? So it's so interesting because if you do think back two weeks ago, there were questions about just how broadly is Jack Smith looking here? Is he looking only narrowly at the sort of submission of fake electors? And we now know the answer He's looking at everything. He's looking at all seven states. He's focusing on all the different aspects of the pressure campaign, the pressure campaign on state and local officials, pressure campaign on Mike Pence, the submission of those fake elector certificates. He's doing what prosecutors have to do. He's getting all the information 
Then he's got to sit down and winnow it down and figure out, is any of this criminal? So one thing that's interesting about our reporting from Zach Cohen about Al Al Schmidt, the Republican in Pennsylvania, is that he said he was asked about how misinformation on widespread voter fraud impacted election officials. That stuck out to me because Jocelyn Benson from Michigan said the same thing the other day that she was asked about essentially the impact that these lies had on election officials. What would Jack Smith's team be trying to do with that information? We used to sometimes say that building a, building a case is like building a house. And if you think of it that way, the misinformation is the foundation. Everything that followed, all these pressure campaigns, all these schemes were all based on a lot. Disinformation. The false claim that Donald Trump had won this election and that there was massive fraud. And it's not surprising that we're hearing similar things from different state officials in different states because you would want as a prosecutor to ask basically the same slate of questions. And if you find yourself getting the same type of answer over and over, then that contributes to an argument that this is coordinated, this was intentional, this was a conspiracy. Congressman, learning that Hope Hicks and Jared Kushner got interviewed last month by Jack Smith's team, and looking back at what they said to your committee, it's kind of amazing to see how closely of a roadmap of what the January 6th committee did that the Justice Department is clearly following. Yeah, look, I think... This was kind of my sense after our first big hearing in the summer where it was like, oh, wow, they have some stuff. They know some things. It seemed like then the Department of Justice actually started their investigation. That's when you started to hear that they were subpoenaing people that, you know, there was an investigation into this. I think my feeling is that they actually kind of were trying to maybe start with some of the low hanging fruit, see what they could build up, maybe avoid prosecuting that. And uh, But yeah, it appears who they're talking to is everybody we talk to, except let me add one thing to their advantage. We can subpoena somebody. If they don't come, you know, we can try to have DOJ hit them with a criminal uh, complaint for that. DOJ actually has a lot more power to do that than we do. And uh, so these people aren't going to be able to resist. And they can also use immunity, which we chose not to use. Do you think that they t- waited too long to, to start with their investigation? Yeah. I mean, look, I obviously not being in the halls of DOJ, I don't know for sure. But we're two years after this now, two and a half years. I think this should have started day one. There was a, this was a threat against you know the U.S. government, against democracy. And now, I don't think it's Jack Smith's fault, but now we're at a point where we're actually into election season. And you know Donald, who's already saying it, is going to say, well, they're just coming after me because of my politics. But can I counter that? Because what a Justice Department official would likely say if they were sitting here is that your committee took too long to hand over transcripts and, and interviews. Should the committee have handed over everything sooner? There was a, There's a lot of details in that in terms of because if we hand it over, then defense has discovery and it had to do with they could have pursued their own legal track at the exact same time. So, yeah. you know, it's not like they needed our question. If I can second that. I've heard that excuse made by DOJ and DOJ apologists mm-hmm. saying, oh, why didn't Adam and his committee hand over the notes? It is an embarrassment to DOJ that Congress got there first. DOJ, as Adam was saying, has so many better tools, so many stronger tools. You guys beat them to the punch on Cassidy Hutchinson, on Pat Cipollone. And DOJ, that is a poor excuse to say, well, we needed their notes. DOJ should have been there themselves before you guys, but you got there first. You talked about how the Justice Department is more effective with a subpoena. If you get a subpoena from the Justice Department, it's a bit scarier than it is coming from uh, the committee and Liz Cheney and everyone, uh, with all due respect, obviously, to the committee. But if you had that subpoena power that they have, who would you want to be talking to right now? Well, look, I wanted to actually hear from people like Steve Bannon, right? He obviously didn't respond to that. Dan Scavino is somebody that I think was really of interest to me because he ran Donald Trump's social media networks, you know, the direct messaging, that coordination. He never came in and talked to us. 
Stuff like that, though, the people that re- actually a lot more of Mark Meadows, he was still the all star on the investigation because his initial tranche of texts text were like goldmine for us in terms of expanding that. But there's a lot more he knows. So as Jack Smith develops this investigation, it'll be like just kind of personally interesting for me to see what these folks that we tried to get to speak to us actually end up saying. Yeah. The other investigation that Jack Smith is doing, just to be clear, is the documents investigation. <laughs> Ellie, and today the New York Times reported that a low-level Trump Organization employee who wasn't identified has gotten a target letter from the special counsel's investigation in recent weeks. A, that means they're still investigating, which we knew was the, hap- was right. the case because the grand jury is still uh, going in in Florida. Uh, but what do you think that could potentially be over? I mean, that signals that person might be charged. Yeah, this is a really big development because the way we initially got the case was there were two charged defendants, Donald Trump and Walt Nauta. That means that Walt Nauta had knowledge of what he was doing. He wasn't just sort of mindlessly moving boxes. He knew why. But there are, I think, five other people referenced in the indictment as other Trump workers or Trump staffers. The presumption at that point was DOJ could not prove that they had criminal knowledge. But now that this person's got a target letter, target means you are a likely defendant in the eyes of prosecutors. The vast majority of times, not always, vast majority of times that results in an indictment. And so it is possible, and I think more possible now, that we see a third defendant added. Okay, and at the risk of needing to pull out a whiteboard to keep (laughs) up with all the investigations, the Georgia investigation. Right. Trump's legal team is asking them, basically, the Supreme Court there, to essentially throw out that investigation. What's the likelihood of that happening? Zero percent that he succeeds on this because that's not something that can happen in our system. A judge cannot stop a grand jury from doing its work and from indicting. But I do have to say, Trump's motion raises some important points. I think valid criticisms of the DA, Fonnie Willis, who has injected politics Mm -hmm. into this case. It's not even an opinion issue. She has already been thrown off part of the case by a judge who's been very sympathetic to her, but he chastised her on the record. She has used her subpoenas in this case to fundraise for her political campaign. I mean, this is major problematic stuff for any prosecutor. That's going to come to roost later, but Trump's not going to win on this motion. And I think the concern with that, too, is so the Georgia case, the New York case are different cases than what the DOJ is doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can have questions about the New York case. And as you mentioned, some of the questions about the motive in Georgia. But the DOJ, I think their motive is completely untainted. It's literally, we have to defend democracy. We have to defend the law. The problem is these kinds of cases and those kinds of biases get mixed up into this big pot of soup that people are out there saying, look, they're just going after Donald Trump. By people, do you mean Trump? Trump. (laughs) Yeah, I mean Trump and the base that just looks at this and goes, see, they're just going after him. That's all they're doing. But it's working for him. I mean, what does does that say about what Republican voters are looking for in 2024? I mean, Trump, what Trump said the other day was verifiably true, which is that his poll numbers are going up despite the numerous indictments. Look, here's, I have two criticisms. Number one is everybody has to be responsible for your vote. That means quit playing emotional with the vote. Find out who's really going to be better for the country. But the other thing is leaders in the GOP. You know, if Liz Cheney and I are the only two speaking out, about a legitimate attack on democracy in this country? I, if you'd asked me three years ago, or if you'd have told me that scenario three or four years ago, I would not have believed you. I would have said there's no way people... Leaders are scared to lose their job, but they have to stand up and tell the 700,000 people in the House that they each represent the truth. Because when they don't tell them the truth, those people can look at me, well, my congressman said that this was January 6th wasn't legitimate. If you're going to lead... You have a responsibility and an oath, and that's serious. 
Pence today noticeably, well, we're going to show his comments later, wouldn't call it an insurrection, what happened on January 6th. He only called it a, a riot. What do you make of that? So he, he keeps playing this game of, look, Mike Pence could have been, I think, the front runner of the not Trump side if he'd have, after January 6th, said, I was all with Donald Trump on everything, but this was the end. I, cu- I couldn't do this. You could win over some Trump Trumpers that are like, ah, I like his policies, but Mike Pence is trying to walk a line, trying to please, trying to, you can't walk a line with Donald Trump. You're in or you're out. There's no 50%. Congressman Ellie, thank you both for joining me tonight. Coming up, a deeply partisan defense bill has passed in the House with divisive social issues like abortion attached. It is setting up a showdown in the Senate and once again putting the U.S. military smack dab in the middle of a political war. Plus, police say they have caught a serial killer here in New York, wanted for more than a decade. The multiple clues that helped lead them to the architect now under arrest. Tonight, a political showdown is on the horizon over politics, abortion, and the military. The House barely approving a defense policy bill known as the National Defense Authorization Act today. In a normal world, this passes with widespread bipartisan support. But today, it barely squeaked by and did so mostly along party lines after Republicans loaded it with divisive amendments on restricting abortion access, eliminating diversity, equity, and inclusion programs and staff from the Pentagon, and banning some health care programs for transgender people. The bill, as it stands, is going to die in the Democratic-controlled Senate. It's almost certain. But it does raise major questions tonight of what Congress is actually going to be able to pass in the end. Joining me now for a perspective on this is Congresswoman Nancy Mace of South Carolina, a Republican who voted for the bill despite blasting her colleagues for some of those amendments that were added. Congresswoman, thank you for joining us. Today, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy claimed he is not being driven to the right by his members, but he says he's simply allowing the House to work its will. Do you agree with that? Um, Well, from my perspective, representing a very middle ground kind of district, uh, I would believe otherwise um, with this bill. And it was one of the more partisan NDAAs that we've had. But when the bill goes to the Senate, we all know that a lot of those amendments will get thrown out by the Senate because the majority is a different makeup than it is in the House. Yeah. But speaking of the amendments, yeah, what passed today is not what it's going to look like in the end. People did still have to vote for it, which was of concern, I know, for people who are in districts uh, like yours. You have repeatedly spoken out on your party's stance on abortion. And you said yesterday, and I'm quoting you now, that your party (laughs) needs to stop being assholes to women. So why did you vote for this today? Well, I was looking at the policy, the consistent, I want to be consistent on military policy and whether travel, because this is very specific to travel, the military does not pay for abortion services at all. But this was strictly related to travel. And the military does not, in any other case, reimburse for travel expenses for elected procedures. Now, I I didn't like, I did not like the idea of this amendment. These are not issues that I believe we should be voting on right now without some consideration of what we can do to protect women and show that we're pro-women, which has been my frustration for the better part of the last seven months. And Caitlin, in fact, I filed an amendment this week for the bill that said for the, the same amount of funding that we would the military would spend on travel reimbursement for women traveling out of the state, that the same amount would be spent for women who chose to have their baby, giving them prenatal care, maternal care, doula care, et cetera, just trying to show that there's a, there's a balancing act here. We can be pro-woman and pro-life. And the, the amendment was ruled out of order. And I have deep frustrations about the way things went down this week. 
But to the Pentagon policy, you're right that it mm-hmm. is not paying for the procedure, something right. that we talked about with Senator Tuberville earlier this week. But also, when you look at this, a woman service member who's stationed at Fort Drum in upstate New York, for example, has more access to abortion services and reproductive health options. A woman who's stationed at Fort Hood in Texas has to travel to get those same services. Do you think that's fair? Well, it doesn't, nothing in here would prohibit a woman from traveling out of state to follow state law. And so I think that's, you know, a really important message. Nothing would prohibit her from being able to do that. There are no limits on her travel. One of the other concerns, the rumor was this week that they were going to limit medical, uh, be able to, the recovery time after having this kind of service. And uh, that was really, that was something I was very concerned about. And I was grateful to see that that was not in there and that there were exceptions for rape, incest, life of the mother, and also no reporting requirements. And so that's something else that I have been uh, screaming from the rooftops that we cannot do to women in these situations. Right. It it doesn't prevent them, of course, from going and getting the procedure. But if you're in the middle of Texas and you've got to get a flight to a state where you can get an abortion, it's different than if you're someone who is in New York or somewhere where you can get one. And of course, as you know, these service members don't decide where they're stationed. If they're in my home state of Alabama, uh, it's virtually inaccessible. Right. But the, but unfortunately, with the military, just that's not the standard protocol for reimbursements for travel. Um, these votes aren't easy. I, I Not everyone's going to agree with all of us on all of our votes, but I take every one of these seriously. And I'm trying to be very thoughtful and purposeful. And I also want to be consistent about military policy. And that's very important to me. But also at the same time, you know, showing that, hey, I have this other amendment that shows we can be pro-women and pro-life at the same time. And then to see it just thrown out at the last minute, um, for me as a female lawmaker, as a mom, as a, as, a, as a woman, it's very frustrating to see that it's just a different standard. There was another moment last night as all of these amendments were being debated where your Republican colleague, Eli Crane, was arguing for the passage of his amendment to prohibit the Pentagon from requiring diversity training when he made this comment. My amendment has nothing to do with whether or not colored people or black people or anybody can serve, okay? It has nothing to do with color Mr. Speaker, skin. I'd like to be recognized to have the words colored people stricken uh, from the record. I find it offensive and very inappropriate. I should note that he later apologized, but is that acceptable language from one of your colleagues? Well, I'm glad to see that he apologized because racism of any kind uh, should never be tolerated. And it's something that I have condemned for a lifetime. I come from South Carolina where we had a a white supremacist uh, kill, shoot and kill nine black church members at Mother Emanuel. And so I want to be very clear that racism of any kind, by any party, by anybody of any color, should always be condemned. in any way, shape, or form. And I'm glad that he apologized and took responsibility for those comments, and we can all move forward from here. Congresswoman Nancy Mace, thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you. For more perspective on what's happening in Washington, I want to bring in Admiral Mike Mullen, the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Admiral Mullen, thank you for being here tonight. I don't have to tell you, you know the NDAA sets Pentagon policy and spending limits for the year ahead, and normally it passes with widespread bipartisan support. So I wonder what goes through your mind and maybe the mind of others who are at the Pentagon now when you see this bill being loaded with all of these social policy provisions from Republicans. Well, I think it, it really hurts the military from a from a reputation standpoint. Uh, it hurts it from a readiness standpoint. It hurts it from a recruiting standpoint. 
and it hurts it from a retention standpoint. Uh, this bill, as you've said, Caitlin, normally passes with significant bipartisan support. I think it is reflective of the political environment uh, and actually to continue to politicize the military, put it right into the middle of all the politics, uh, actually is something that we, we, those of us who served and those who are leading now uh, want to stay as far away from as possible. So it's a very, very difficult and quite frankly challenging time for our military and our military leadership. Well, and speaking of that, Senator Tommy Tuberville was on the show earlier this week. He has continued his hold on hundreds of military nominations in protest of that policy that I was just talking about there with Congresswoman Mace. He has a new op-ed out today, and this is quoting from it. He says, politicizing the military would be a tragedy in any country, but it is especially tragic because the American military is the last non-political institution in our public life. Given those words from the senator, do you believe he's the one politicizing the military? I believe very strongly he's doing the exactly that, Caitlin. He's putting the military right in the middle of the abortion debate. And, and if his principle is certainly to uh, support, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the abortion issue from his perspective, that's fine. And, and he can represent uh, his constituents in that regard. But what he's doing is he's putting the military right in the middle of politics, which is historically something you know we've worked hard to stay out of, uh, as well as many on the Hill have kept us out of that as well. So he's actually doing the exact opposite uh, of, uh, of what he says he's doing. Um, uh, he's, as you know, he's holding up many, many appointments. That's gonna have a compounding effect on leadership. It's gonna have a huge effect on families, families that are trying to move kids into school, uh, family spouses who are looking for employment because they're due to move to another place. And these are families that support us uh, in everything that we do in what is a very, very difficult, challenging, and also patriotic service to our country. My colleague, Haley Britsky, who's at the, the Pen- she's a Pentagon producer for CNN, she took this picture of the Joint Chiefs headshots at the Pentagon. Of course, you're the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Your photo used to be right up there at the top. What is it like for you to look at that and to see that empty space where the Marine Commandant should be, but is not because he can't get confirmed because of this hold? Well, he's the first of many, quite frankly, because if the hold continues, uh, each service chief uh, and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, those positions will not be filled or they will be filled by uh, temporary or acting individuals. And acting is one of the least popular uh, descriptions of, of any office in Washington because you, you know that that individual is not going to be there for very long. So it just has this compounding effect. And, and I think the number by the end of the year, if he keeps it up, is his holds, uh, which are now affecting, I think, 250 uh, or so mm-hmm. uh, officers will be upwards of you know 650, which is 89% or close to 90% of our flags and who lead the greatest military in the world at a really critical time when we're facing increasing challenges from China uh, and, and a significant challenge from Russia. It's as, it's as challenging a time from that perspective as I've seen in many decades. What, what goes through your mind when he makes comments like there's too many admirals and too many generals anyway at the top? Um, I mean, that, that I think the number that we have is 850. We need that leadership. That's not a new criticism, quite frankly. 
Uh, he's, I don't think his stated goal is to get rid of admirals and generals. Uh, I think it really is to try to win on the political side here at a time when that kind of initiative, this kind of initiative from his perspective impacts the trust level in the United States military, where we still are very high as a trusted institution, but we are falling and have fallen in the last several years. And this is just another example of politics impacting, you know, on that fall. And that trust is absolutely vital between our military and the American people. Yeah. There was another moment today where Vice President Mike Pence, former Vice President Mike Pence, who obviously, as you know, is running for president, was in Iowa at a forum where all, many of the candidates were, were interviewed by Tucker Carlson. He was asked about his support for Ukraine. This is what he said. Your concern is that the Ukrainians, a country most people can't find on a map, who've received tens of billions of U.S. tax dollars, don't have enough tanks. Right. I think it's a fair question to ask, like, where's the concern for the United States in that? Well, it's not my concern. Tucker, I've heard that routine from you before, but that's not my concern. Anybody that says that we can't be the leader of the free world and solve our problems at home has a pretty small view of the greatest nation on earth. We can do both. What do you make of that? I agree completely with what uh, Vice President Pence said. I, I think we can do both. Uh, and actually, I think if we don't do both, if we recede from overseas, if we isolate ourselves, we actually become weaker over time as a nation. And you can see what the leadership that we've shown, you know, in Ukraine uh, and, and in Europe uh, and the solidarity there uh, has been extraordinary. And it's a strong message to China as well, who has called us a nation in decline and yet is now sort of giving pause to that thought uh, because of how strong we've been uh, in Europe. And we'll be that strong uh, with respect to China as well. So I couldn't agree more with what Vice President Spent Pence said. Admiral Mike Mullen, thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Caitlin. Coming up, a string of murders on Long Island have baffled investigators for more than a decade. But today, police say they have a suspect. Tracking him down with burner phones, pizza crust, and other clues we'll tell you about next. A fake email account, a burner phone, and leftover pizza crust. Those were the crucial pieces of evidence prosecutors say led to the arrest of a New York serial killer and a decades-long cold case. Today, Rex Hewerman pleaded not guilty to six counts of murder in connection with the deaths of three of the four women who are now known as the Gilgo Four. He remains a prime suspect in the death of the fourth victim. All of the women were found bound in camouflage burlap in the same area just within days of one another in 2010. Police would later find that at least six more sets of human remains spread across the shore of Long Island, but there were no major leads until recently. Prosecutors zeroed in on a suspect, a New York architect and married father of two, by tracking a fake email address and burner phones that included the selfie that you're looking at right now. Perhaps the most damning evidence, though, came from a pizza box, which investigators got after digging through the suspect's trash. DNA evidence from a swabbed pizza crust matched the DNA of a hair that was found on one of the victims. Police prosecutors say that they acted quickly because they feared that other victims could also be in danger. One of the reasons why we, we had to take this case down was we learned that the defendant was using these alternate uh, um, identities and these alternate instruments to continue to patronize sex workers, uh, which of course made us very nervous.
For more on this stunning case, investigative journalist Robert Kolker joins me now. He is the author of Lost Girls, a book exploring these Gilgo Beach murders that I should note was published a decade ago. Bob, I mean, you've covered this more closely than almost anyone else. You know the victims' families. You know their stories. What went through your mind today when you heard that a suspect had been arrested? It's an incredible day, a really moving day. The book about this case that I wrote was published 10 years ago. The case broke 12 years ago. And um, these families have been waiting even longer. Some of these women were missing for years before they were part of a serial killer case. And so to have uh, public attention on it now is amazing. And to have a break in the case, even more amazing. Caitlin, this is a case where there have been no suspects, no declared persons of interest, practically silence from the police, except for an occasional press release. The victims' families have been in the dark for years. Kids have grown up not knowing what happened to their mothers. And so it's a stunning day. And to hear what prosecutors allege today, that Hurman used the cell phone of at least one of the victims to call her family members and taunt them, saying that he sexually assaulted her and killed her. I mean, just the idea that he was kind of just living among everyone for the last 13 years, had a job. There's this YouTube video where he's being interviewed by someone about architectural design. I mean, it's just stunning. Those cell phone calls to Melissa Bartholomew's family, to her little sister, were horrifying. We've known about those for some time, and we've known that they seem to have been made from uh, Midtown. But we haven't known anything more than that. What we've learned today is that this is a guy who's been hiding in plain sight. He's been in a densely populated area, a big town in Long Island, Massapequa Park. He's been commuting to Manhattan And um, he's had a public-facing job, a job with a lot of high-profile clients. And so you don't really expect that in a serial killer case. This is a case filled with surprises, and this is just one more huge surprise. And he was arrested, I mean, not far from where we are sitting right now. That's right. And uh, more to the point, a really short drive from where those four sets of human remains were first found back in 2010. He he commuted into Manhattan, where a lot of uh, other evidence and other, you know, Things part of the case took place right next to his office. Uh, they seemed to understand that the killer used burner phones, and then they found out that he used burner phones. And then they traced his movements all over the place, and then they traced the movements of phones that had called these women, and they saw that wherever he went, these burner phones went. That led them next to the pizza crust, to the DNA, and they seemed to seal the deal with that. And, I mean, I think one of the most notable and, and frankly, disgusting parts of this case is how uninterested initially the police seemed to be in it because of who the victims were and what they did. I mean, you reported on how Shannon Gilbert's family struggled to even get her listed as a missing person. You you said that, quote, even after it came out that Ms. Gilbert had made a 911 call that night during which she insisted someone was trying to kill her. It's astonishing, and she's not the only one. Maureen Brainerd Barnes disappeared in 2007 and for years never made it onto the missing persons list. But then, once the serial killer case broke and they found her remains, suddenly everyone is interested. These family members have been in the most peculiar position, Caitlin. I've been getting into this in Lost Girls and have written about it ever since. Everybody wants to know about them and their sisters, but no one wants to treat their sisters like human beings and to see that they had lives beyond uh, the money they made from escort work for this period of their lives. And I I hope Lost Girls did something to help that, but also more to the point, it's heartening to see law enforcement today sort of turning around and actually visibly hugging. The police commissioner gave hugs to the family members at the press conference today, so that was pretty heartening. Yeah, they brought them, them with them. Where do you think it goes from here? I mean, we know that he's been charged with this. He's pleaded not guilty, of course. We have to note and said he didn't do it. 
but they say he's the prime suspect in a fourth murder as well. Obviously, there are other six other sets of remains in addition to that. That fourth uh, suspected murder is Maureen Brainerd Barnes, and it, it does seem like it's the same MO, but there are many other victims. There are you know four or five other women and a man and a toddler. Um, human remains uh, seem to be dumped up and down Ocean Parkway and out in the Pine Barrens in Long Island. A lot of unsolved mysteries out there. Uh, hopefully this really gives you know, rocket fuel to the police and gets them going on other cases, too. Well, Robert Colcourt, thank you for your expertise and your reporting on this and for staying on top of this story. Thanks, Kate. Thank you for joining us. Ahead, the Fired Fox News host, Tucker Carlson, moderated a presidential forum in Iowa today, grilling six of the Republican candidates for president, even tangling with former Vice President Mike Pence at one point. Subject, not January 6th. We'll tell you what it was. Six Republican presidential candidates attended the Family Leadership Summit in Iowa today to court evangelical voters. All were interviewed by the former Fox News host, Tucker Carlson, who pressed them on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Okay. Uh, Where are you on on the matter of sending cluster bombs to the Ukrainian military? Well, if I was president of the United States, we wouldn't have to. Here's what you saw. But but now that we have, what do you think of it? I mean, I think they're, they're there. The Ukrainian Orthodox Church within Ukraine has persecuted Christians. And I wonder if you raised that with him. I asked the Christian leader in Kiev if that was in fact happening, and he assured me that it was not. I can't let you elide over the question of the treatment of Christians. And I, I know, I, I heard and that would again, you be, well, No, but hold on. Would you, you, would you be willing? The problem is you don't accept my answer. I just told you that I asked the religious leader in Kiev if it was happening. You asked me if I raised the issue, and I did. You can't subcontract out our interest to a foreign leader. You can't want it to go on because it'll be good for defense contractors or, you know, globalist investors. It's all about what's in our interest. And I think we're basically in a situation with our foreign policy. We're providing a blanket security to Europe. Joining me now, CNN political analyst and former Democratic South Carolina State Representative Bakari Sellers and former Republican Congressman from Pennsylvania and the executive director of the Aspen Institute Congressional program, Charlie Dent. A lot of titles there. I mean, Charlie, this is an evangelical event. It's supposed to be in front of all the evangelical voters. It's run by Vander Platt, of course, a prominent evangelical figure. I mean, most of it was about foreign policy, though, and, and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Well, Tucker Carlson, uh, a toady for Vladimir Putin, <laughs> is upset with these candidates for not supporting Vladimir Putin. Uh, it's, it's almost embarrassing that a mouthpiece for Russia today is interviewing Republican candidates uh, who are seeking the presidency of the United States. This is where we are. It's, it's tragic. Uh, I mean, Ukraine is standing up for, for, for democracy. They're standing up for all of Western, all of Europe. Uh, and for P- Tucker Carlson to go out there and grill these guys you know, for not, not, not uh, carrying Putin's water is just simply outrageous. But he, if you watch it, I watched several hours of it today. When he was making points to to Pence, saying you're more worried about when tanks are arriving in Ukraine than than American cities, it got a lot of applause from the audience. What does it say about the Republican voters and where they are? Well, uh, sadly, you know the party, the, the, much of the party base has become much more isolationist, protectionist, and at times nativist. Uh, and this is not a healthy place for the party to be. We've seen this in the 1930s. Uh, you know, our two oceans didn't protect us. Uh, from being attacked at Pearl Harbor. Uh, you know, our oceans didn't protect us on 9-11 when we were attacked by Al-Qaeda. Uh, I, when will we learn? 
Uh, when will we ever learn the lesson? You know, this is a good investment for us, investing in Ukraine. Ukrainians are dying to stop what the Russians are doing. Not one American has died. Uh, but they're protecting the interests of a lot of people who are just trying to maintain their freedom in Lithuania and Poland and Estonia, Latvia and elsewhere. That's what this is about. And Bukhari, Governor DeSantis did get asked about abortion. Obviously, we've seen what's happened in your home state with the abortion bill that was signed there. He was asked if he would sign a six-week federal abortion ban. This is how he answered. Well, I'm very proud to say Kim Reynolds is here, and she signed a great heartbeat bill today. We were able to do that in Florida. We had a lot of opposition to that. Uh, I'm proud to have been a pro-life governor, uh, and I will be a pro-life president. So, I mean, of course I want to sign uh, pro-life legislation. But that wasn't, an, of course, I want to sign a six-week federal ban. I mean, he signed a six-week ban in his state, but he wouldn't say if he's willing to do it nationally. First of all, if Charlie Dent was running for president of the United States and had that level of clarity um, that some other people would uh, should have, then the Republican field would be in a different space. And so kudos to my colleague, yeah. Charlie, for being here. He's also retired, and that means that he probably couldn't Everybody's win a— joining us. I'm yeah, still no, working. He, he, <laughs> he couldn't win a Republican primary, but yet he is, clear, he is very extreme, he's extremely clear, and he's actually hitting the points necessary in Ukraine and Russia. I think what people have to understand is that uh, Ron DeSantis is fading. He's fading quickly. Um, and when you have an opportunity in front of somebody like T Tucker Carlson, who is the heartbeat, respectfully, of the Republican Party, you have to do everything you can. And, and what we saw today, I mean, from all the candidates, from um, Tim Scott, Ron DeSantis, um, you saw Mike Pence, you saw them have to humble themselves in front of Tucker Carlson. Just imagine that. You had to, they had to humble themselves and come down on bended knee on issues. And when you talk about what uh, abortion and, and Ron DeSantis, what you realize is that he really stands for absolutely nothing. It, it, he, he flatulates and goes from one side to another. And what we saw today was just uh, uh, emblematic of what the new Republican Party is. Pence probably tangled with Tucker Carlson the most, but we got his fundraising numbers today. He brought in $1.2 million. Uh, you just, you're making my point. Like if you... you but that's, I mean, that's, that's the that's second a, quarter of fundraising. The point for that, those watching at home who that, don't know that, the numbers, that's not good. And he hasn't qualified for the debate stage yet in well, August. Well, that's a great quarter uh, for a U.S. House member. Uh, but it's a terrible quarter for a candidate running for presidency. Well, he's kind of in a no man's land. You know, he's, you know, he was with Trump right up until the end. Uh, and then January 6th happened. And, you know, he, you have to be 100 percent with Donald Trump. And Adam, Schiff, Adam Schiff outraised him six to one for yeah, a I United mean, States Senate a, seat in California. I mean, this is the it's problem. A paltry number. This is this is the problem that you have when you have any morals or ethics. And when you either you're here with me and respectfully, Charlie Dent, or you can only raise one point two million dollars when you run for president of the United States. I think that Donald Trump has this race. This is his race to lose. I think the only person who can compete with Donald Trump is Tim Scott. And we'll see what happens with that. Well, and DeSantis's team is now putting out memos saying that they believe that Tim Scott is going to get a lot more scrutiny. I do want to note before we go, Biden's campaign announced today that he and the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, raised $72 million since he announced he was running. That seems pretty strong. But when you look at it compared to Donald Trump and the RNC when he was in office, $105 million. Barack Obama and the DNC, $86 million. Biden's numbers aren't very high. <laughs> Trust me, you have to do Biden's numbers relative to the people he's running against. His numbers are far superior to the former president of the United States, Donald Trump. Joe Biden is in a in the catbird seat running for president of the United States. Robert F. So Kennedy doesn't give you any concern. No, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. 
has raised more money than the people who are the forerunners running against Donald Trump right now. It's respectable, but not not great. Bakari, Charlie Dent, thank you both. Ahead, Hollywood is on strike as actors are joining writers on the picket lines today. Even the Barbie movie now speaking out. Stand up, fight back! Stand up, fight back! The resounding chant of a union bringing Hollywood to a standstill tonight. SAG-AFTRA, which represents about 160,000 actors, actors, officially hit the picket lines today, joining writers in their strike against major studios and streaming services. The biggest walkout that we have seen in four decades. I'm very much in support of all the unions. There's money being made and, and it needs to be allocated in a way that takes care of people who are, who are on the margins. You hear from big stars like that and their support, but we should note tonight, the majority of actors in Hollywood only make about $65,000 a year. Both actors and writers want better pay and new protection protections in a world of rapidly changing technology. That means guardrails around the use of artificial intelligence and offering increased royalties from streaming services. Remember when shows like Seinfeld are syndicated on cable? Writers and actors are paid royalties with every rerun. But now, with global streaming services that we all watch, that means they only get a fixed royalty no matter how many times a show is viewed. That's what's at stake here. Thank you so much for joining us tonight and every night this week. Who's Talking to Chris Wallace is up next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.